God showed the love when I went bad sin. God showed the die for me. Boom, five, eight. God showed the love when I went bad sin. God showed the die for me. Boom, five, eight. God showed the love chosen love God chosen love chosen love God chosen love Boom, five. God chose a lover when I went bad sin. God chose to die for me. Boom, five, eight. God chose a lover when I went bad sin. God chose to die for me. Boom, five, eight. God chose a lover. Chose a lover. God chose a lover. Chose a lover. God chose a lover. Boom, five, eight. Well, good morning, everybody. Let's get this party started. Good morning, Amy, Jessica, Will, James, Pixelated Fox, Becca, all you guys. What's up? Let me know how you're doing in the chat. What is God teaching you today? That's what I want to know. What is God teaching you? Maybe not just today, but throughout this season of your life, this week in scripture, what's God teaching you? I want to hear what you guys are learning and what God is um, bringing you through. I would love to hear that. That'd be a blessing to me as we're waiting for people to jump in. Then we'll jump into episode number seven of this series we're calling Jesus Is. Jesus Is. We've already talked about how Jesus is righteousness. We've talked about how he's wisdom. What's up, James? The Jamester. Good morning, brother. Uh, we talked about how Jesus is righteousness, wisdom. I'm going to lose track of them, to be honest. Life, light, um, I don't think we've talked about peace yet. We've talked about how he's truth. Um, we'll talk about peace next week. Today, it's salvation. Today, it's salvation. So I'm excited for this one. I think every one of us, every person on the planet, every one of you has a sense that you need a salvation of some kind. And every one of you has an idea of what you think you need to be saved from. Uh, for some people, I need to be saved from financial turmoil. For some of you, it's emotional distress, like depression, suicidal thoughts. Some of you, your, your sense of salvation is, I just want to be saved from this addiction, this pattern that's been passed down from generation to generation. Some of you, it's, I have a broken family, a terrible home situation. I need salvation. I need to be saved from that. Maybe for some of you, it's a life-threatening sickness. Um, and many of you would agree with what scripture teaches, that ultimately what we need is a spiritual, eternal salvation that transcends this physical, material reality and temporary world. And so a lot of you know that our real issue is spiritual. That what we need to be saved from is eternal in nature. It's, we need to be saved from sin. We need to be saved from eternal darkness, separation from God, and the, the wrath of God ultimately against sin. We need to be saved from death. And so within every single one of us, there's this innate sense. Every person on the planet has this innate sense that they need to be saved from something and that salvation doesn't come from within, it comes from without. And so what you're really looking for, what every person on the planet desperately needs, is Jesus. The one that scripture tells us is our salvation. He is our salvation. He doesn't just provide it. 
He doesn't just make way for it. He is our salvation. And so the question becomes, what does it mean that a person is salvation? How does that make any rational sense? How is that a logical statement that a person is our salvation or is the salvation for humanity? This is what every one of us needs. Okay, I'm not saying your, your need or the, your desire to be saved from, I don't know, depression, suicidal thoughts, emotional distress, a life-threatening sickness. I'm not saying those are not valid needs. They are. They are. They just are not ultimate. They're not ultimate. What's ultimate is what is eternal. These temporary issues and problems will fade. They will stop. Eventually, they're going to end. Um, so we have to, you know, figure out what does it mean that Jesus is our salvation. So this is episode number seven on this series we're calling Jesus Is. Let me take you to Isaiah chapter 12, verse 2, and we're going to set the tone, okay? We're just going to lay a foundation. As we do in these episodes, what this series called Jesus Is, what we would like to do is look at the Old Testament, because we're not just going to say Jesus is this abstract idea. We're not just going to say Jesus is this general sense of, of, of salvation. We want to look at the Old Testament and say, how does the Old Testament, thousands of years before Jesus comes on the scene, how does the Old Testament explain and define salvation? How does the Old Testament communicate salvation? And then we'll see Jesus fit right into the slot of what the Old Testament creates as this need for salvation. It's really cool. So throughout this series, my goal is not just to address your, your very real, you know, personal needs and, and your, you know, your relationship with God. And my desire is that you would see Jesus clearer, that you would have a more exalted view of who he really is. And not just who your grandma told you he is, and not just who your pastor told you who he is, and not who you think he is, who he actually is, which requires us to dig into the Old Testament because the new is built on the old. Okay, so the new covenant built on the old, the old makes way for the new. So what we want to do is say, okay, Jesus is salvation. I want to see him foreshadowed and prophesied in the Old Testament, even when it's not explicitly stated um, that this is a prophecy. We're going to see salvation, the typology of that, uh, fulfilled in Christ. Okay, Isaiah chapter 12, verse 2. First thing you got to know, God is our salvation. He always has been. Isaiah 12, verse 2, it says, God is my salvation. Okay, that already presents this really uh, cool connection between Jesus and the Father. Um, if Jesus is going to be salvation, not just a way of salvation, not just an extension of God's salvation, but the substance and the essence of salvation, well, Isaiah 12, 2 tells us God is that. Okay, I will trust and I will not be afraid, for the Lord is my strength. He is my song. He has become my salvation. So what God has always been, right? Who he always has been is salvation. Good morning, Leandro. It's good to see you, sister. Praying for you, by the way. What God has always been, regardless of my interactions and encounter with him, is that he's been salvation. But... There comes a point in my life and your life where you actually experience God as your salvation, where he actually becomes the salvation you need him to be because you cry out for the help he provides. And so the Lord is my strength and my song. He actually becomes our salvation when you cry out for help. Okay. Imagine you're floating uh, in the ocean on a piece of driftwood. It's really janky. There's no one around for miles and miles and miles. And you crying out for help to be rescued by someone is you asking for salvation. That's what God provides. And that's the position you and I need to find ourselves in in order to experience what he actually makes available. We need to reach a point of desperation. 
We need to reach the end of ourselves. We need to humble ourselves and realize I am not enough. I am not sufficient. I need something beyond me. Psalm 27, 1, it says, The Lord, He is my light. He's my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold. Now I'm going to connect these ideas for you, okay? For the Lord to be the salvation of His people, it means He's a stronghold, a safe place for them. He provides safety and security. He provides confidence. He provides protection. He cares for them. A stronghold is that kind of idea. That's who God is. Okay? But also connected to being our salvation, He's our light. He's our guiding force. He brings clarity to our steps. He directs our decisions. And that's why we talked about how Jesus is light. That's part of what it means for Him to be salvation. Is He shines the light of His salvation into the darkness of this broken, depraved world. And He brings what is foreign to this world. The light of His salvation. He is the light of humanity. He is the life that we need. So who shall we fear? If he's my stronghold, if God is my salvation, who should I be afraid of? No one. Absolutely nobody. Because no one can touch um, those who are secure and protected in the shadow of the wings of God. Genesis 49, 18, at least in an eternal sense, your soul can't be touched. And this is why Jesus will say, look, <laughs> why would you be afraid of people? who can do nothing but end your life. And you and I are like, well, that's kind of a big deal. <laughs> I should, I'm kind of terrified of losing my life. Jesus will go on to say, well, you know, you should definitely fear God who can destroy both body and soul in hell. In other words, he has the authority and the only say about where your soul ends up. No other person, no other thing, no other being has that authority and gets to make that decision. So whose opinion should you be concerned with? Peoples? who are temporary creatures, finite just like you, or God, who has authority over your soul. Genesis 49, 18, uh, this is within the prophecy that Jacob is giving about his, his sons, which will end up being the different tribes of Israel, okay? And what he says about um, Dan, uh, Jacob says, I, I wait for your salvation, O Lord. And so even back in Genesis chapter 49, there's the sense of God is going to bring a kind of salvation, Lord, and we wait for it. Now, you and I aren't waiting for it as if to say, Jesus has not come. No, we're waiting for the actual, like, full experience of the salvation we have in Christ, which is new creation, which is Jesus coming in glory, which is the second coming of Christ, where he will rule and reign over his enemies and set up his kingdom for eternity. That's what we're waiting for. I'm not waiting to be saved from sin and death. I already am. That's my position. I have that currently. It's a gift from God. But the full manifestation of that, the full experience of that in, in a new redemptive, uh, redeemed body, in a new glorified body, we're waiting for that, which is just part of the salvation package. Okay. In Jacob's day, he was waiting for what we'll see in Luke. Um, what was his name? Uh, Simeon was waiting to see the salvation of God. And then he's going to see the baby Jesus and go, I've seen your salvation. That's what Jacob's mainly waiting for and declaring, predicting that will come. Which seems to come on the heels of um, Dan being a serpent, by the way. Now, I want you to see this real quick. Um, before I jump to Psalm chapter 35, I just said before, dang it. This idea of salvation right here. There's a viper here. And Dan is kind of like the serpent, the viper in, in this 
scenario. He's biting the heels, okay? That idea of a serpent biting at the heels or stinging the heels and then salvation coming on the, pun intended, heels of that is actually what we see in Genesis 3. The very first promise of salvation that God gives right after Adam and Eve make a big old boo-boo. He says to the serpent, this is God talking to the serpent. I will put enmity between you and the woman. There's this, there's this clear conflict that is being communicated. The woman and the serpent will have a conflict and their offspring will also have a conflict. He, the seed of the woman, the offspring of the woman, he will bruise your head, you big dumb serpent, but you'll just bite or bruise his heel. In other words, you'll inflict a temporary injury that he'll recover from. He'll just absolutely obliterate you. This is the first promise of salvation right on the heels of their failure. And Jacob, you know, aware of that seemingly, seems to declare the salvation of the Lord coming from Israel. And it will ultimately be the destruction of the serpent, even though the serpent will inflict a, uh, a temporary mortal wound to the, the offspring of the woman, um, he will ultimately conquer the serpent and Jesus will raise back from the dead. Now, Psalm 35 verse 3 also tells us God is our salvation. Draw the spear and javelin against my pursuers. Say to my soul, I am your salvation. This is the psalmist, you know, saying, Lord, um, Oh, he's talking to his soul, or talking to the Lord, sorry. <laughs> All over the place. He's talking to his, the Lord saying, would you say to my soul, you're my salvation? That's a prayer I think you guys should note down. If I, if I were you, I would write that down. I don't hear a lot of people praying that. Like, God, would you tell my soul, remind my soul, give me that reassurance. You are my salvation. Nothing else, no one else, and no other created being can be that for me. I don't want to look for that in anyone or anything else. Not my finances, not a better job, not a new house, not a better family. I want to look for that in you. So would you remind my soul that you're my salvation? That's what we need. That's what we need so badly, is that reminder that it is God who is our salvation. The, the embodiment of salvation itself, the source, the essence, He is it. He does not just provide it. He is salvation. Very important as we move forward, okay? That's why you can have statements like 2 Samuel chapter 22, where God is our Savior, okay? Um, David speaks to the Lord, where David spoke to the Lord the words of the song. Here's what he says. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my rock in whom I take refuge my shield, the horn of my salvation. Think of like a trumpet when you blow it because there's victory, right? You're declaring victory in the land. You're, de you're declaring victory over the enemy. The horn of his salvation, the trumpet that is blown in the land to declare salvation is here. You are my stronghold, my refuge. Now I'm connecting all these ideas for you to show you what it means that God is salvation to his people. It has always been, he is a safe haven, a sanctuary. That place you run to in distress. That place you need to run to when life is crumbling in on you. And life is just toppling onto you. 
that place where the pressure is built up so bad you don't you don't have anywhere to turn and all your different addictions aren't even doing it for you god is the salvation and the stronghold and the refuge you need to run to he's the fortress he delivers us look at all these ideas him being a fortress is the same thing as being a stronghold that safe place against the enemy where the enemy can't break in he's our rock that we stand on he delivers us now watch he's our savior too this is what David declares. You are my savior. Now, all of these ideas, when, when you think savior, you and I just think only sin or only sickness or only death. All these idea, ideas come together in salvation. He delivers, rescues us. And then he's that safe place I find refuge in, right? He's my stronghold, my sanctuary, the place where I find comfort and confidence and security. He's the rock I stand on. He's defending me. He's protecting me. All these ideas come together in him being my salvation. Now this scripture right here, it's a pretty fun one. Isaiah 43 verse 11. This is what the Lord says. He says, I am the Lord. Besides me, there is no savior. Now let's just highlight that. Besides God, who is a savior? Who can rescue someone's soul out of death? Who can definitely, absolutely make sure someone is spared from death? Who has that authority? Who has the ability to do that without any chance of failure? Sounds like only God can. So when Jesus comes on the scene, and he's presented as the exclusive savior or our salvation, you start to see how Jesus relates to the Father. And now we start to develop this concept of what we refer to, at least in Western Christianity or evangelicalism, as the Godhead. Now, whether that's limited to, to, to try and three, or whether you're thinking, well, I think there's more expressions, either way, the, the, the compound, complex unity of God is something that you should really consider. Now, <clears throat> one of the first, I'm trying, I want to make sure I state this correctly. One of the grandest demonstrations of salvation is when Israel's brought out of Egypt. Wouldn't you agree? Like that's one of the big, uh, well, besides Noah being rescued from the flood, that's a big one. But, you know, the floodwaters coming in on the Egyptians is kind of that same idea happening. This is almost like a secondary flood, but this time it's a nation and not just a little family. Okay, so what you're about to see in Exodus 14 is very important, okay? And I'm going to give you a little glimpse into the New Testament. In Luke, Luke's gospel, Simeon and other people are going to say that they have seen the salvation of the Lord and they're looking at baby Jesus. They've seen the salvation of the Lord. Now, what Moses tells the people of Israel as they're looking at the Reed Sea, Moses says to the people, fear not, stand firm. You're about to see the salvation of the Lord. Okay. Which he will work for you. So salvation is not something you and I achieve. At least the first clearest example, second after Noah, of salvation for the people of Israel is they don't achieve it, 
They don't work for it. They're not striving to make it happen. They're not like earning it. It's not based on their efforts. It's God works salvation for you. That's always been the idea and the pattern that's going to be followed in the, into the New Testament. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you won't see them again. The Lord will fight for you. The Lord will fight for you. Okay? Just be quiet. There's a word for some of you. <laughs> There's a word for some of you. So Moses tells the people of Israel, y'all freaking out. Gosh, calm down. You're about to see the salvation of God. Shh. Stop complaining. Stop accusing God of failing us. Be quiet. He's about to fight for you. He's going to work out your salvation for you today. That doesn't change when it translates into spiritual salvation from sin and death. God works our salvation for us. He fights for us. He accomplishes it for us. You don't. So the third thing you need to know about you know, salvation is that, well, God brings and gives salvation. And it, usually it's salvation from enemies, like the Egyptians, or salvation from death, like Jonah, or like Noah. Okay, so death is an enemy. That's how 1 Corinthians 15 communicates it. Death is an enemy to humanity. It's not made, creation didn't originally have death. Okay, death came in. So Acts chapter 7 verse 25. For those of you that put any emphasis and efforts on your own ability to earn or achieve or sustain your salvation, I hope this clear message breaks you of that legalistic, religious, self-righteous mentality, man. Some of you, like there is, works are good fruit. Let me pause. Good works are going to happen for those who have true faith. True, genuine faith in Jesus, which is what saves us. That faith will never be without fruit. It always includes transformation, sanctification, love over time. There will be evidence, okay? Faith is never without a witness, okay? But that witness or that fruit is not the reason you're saved. It's not what keeps you saved, okay? Jesus accomplishes, he completes our salvation. He perfects it, he originates it, right? And he's gonna bring it to completion as well. So he's not just the one who authors it, He's not just the one who maintains and sustains it. He also finishes it. And this is not without your conscious effort. This doesn't mean you have, this does not mean you don't have a responsibility at all. It means you don't have a role in saving yourself or keeping yourself saved. You don't, you don't. Your job is to do what faith is naturally going to produce, which is love, sanctification, pursuing God, all these different things. Now, when you do those things, that doesn't make you more or less saved when you don't, okay? God works our salvation. That's the clear pattern in scripture. He accomplishes it, you'll see it, and you'll cling to him and cry out for his salvation, or you won't. Acts 7.25, this is what's said of Moses. Moses thought he was going to save his people when he saw the Egyptian uh, taskmaster just beating the living daylights out of an Israelite. Moses steps in, kills the guy, runs away because he's terrified of Pharaoh. Uh, and before he even runs away, some of the Israelites come up and go, are you going to kill us like you killed that Egyptian? And this is what Stephen says in hindsight. He go, Moses thought supposed his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they didn't understand. So there is a 
kind of salvation Stephen's looking back at, the Exodus, where Moses goes, see the salvation of the Lord. Moses thought he would give salvation by his own hand, that God was giving salvation through Moses in that instance. Moses wasn't wrong. It just wasn't the right time. And that wasn't the way to do it. Moses wanted to, had an idea that he would play a role in helping the Israelite people, his, you know, brothers and sisters, but he just went about it the wrong way and at the wrong time. So Stephen looking back goes, yeah, he thought he was bringing them and they, they would understand, but they didn't, they didn't. Now, what you're going to see is that not only is salvation from God and by God and accomplished, you know, being him being our salvation, but he also gives it at the hand of certain people, like the judges, um, like certain uh, kings, um, and ultimately, Jesus, who is going to be the ultimate judge, king, priest, prophet. So that's not a new idea. First uh, Samuel eleven thirteen. I'm just trying to show you that it is God who works your salvation for you. And again, that doesn't mean you sit back and do nothing. He's not giving you permission to be lazy and disobedient. If that's what you think, your faith might not be what you think it is. 1 Samuel eleven thirteen, Saul says, Not a man um, shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Different context, different situation. The point is Saul recognizes that it is God who works salvation for his people. That doesn't change with the cross. That doesn't change with our sin and our darkness and our death. That actually is continuing. In other words, that's why I start in the Old Testament. To let you know that what we see Jesus do is not some brand new thing that's out of left field. Where we're like, whoa, didn't see that coming. If you read the Old Testament, you'll see it coming. And you'll go, wow. And that's, that's, that's why I do this. My point is that you would stand in awe of scripture, of God, of what he's done through his son. And really see the depth of this. Uh, Psalm 14, 7, salvation actually is going to come out of Zion. Which is the holy place of God's residency. Where he's taken up residency among the nation of Israel being Jerusalem. Mount Zion. In the temple. So the psalmist says, oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. So there's this longing in the heart of the, the psalmist for God to bring salvation out of Jerusalem. Specifically, seems to be from the, from the core of the nation of Israel. And he goes, oh, that salvation for Israel. Well, the salvation God brings is not just for a specific nation, but for anyone who would believe. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. Okay, so Israel will experience um, a fuller sense of salvation in the end times, I believe. I believe that nation um, will turn to the Messiah. After a series of events, for sure. But I believe that Romans uh, 10 and 11 lets us know what's going to happen with the nation of Israel. He's not done. For those of you that believe in replacement theology, where the church replaces the nation of Israel, I, I understand what you think you're saying. It's, not, it's just not completely correct. <clears throat> so hold on to that. Isaiah 46, 13. This is what the Lord says. Okay. 
the Lord says, I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off. My salvation will not delay. Watch what the Lord says. So the longing in the heart of the psalmist for salvation to come out of Zion, it's actually validated by God. He affirms that. I will put salvation in Zion for Israel my glory. Now you can say Israel here is the glory. That's fine. That's fine. I'm totally in agreement. I also believe that the salvation God is going to work is also his glory. So watch. Whatever the salvation is that humanity needs, that God is going to bring, which is foreshadowed in the Old Testament and typified, it's this. It's, it includes righteousness and it includes the glory of God. Okay? So whatever salvation humanity is waiting for, there's going to be this dimension of God's righteousness and the other dimension of God's glory. <clears throat> Both those characteristics, righteousness and glory, are true of Jesus. Like he is the glory of God. He is righteousness. Okay, and that's the salvation. Um, we'll see. Now, there's one more thing um, that's worth noting. Psalm 60. Just know this. God's salvation is different than man's salvation. Whatever humanity imagines as salvation on their own, in their own strength, by their own efforts, according to their own intellect, that worldly wisdom is just different than the way God works salvation. And it's different than the kind of salvation that God brings. So Psalm 60 tells us salvation of man is vain. In other words, oh, grant us help against the foe for vain is the salvation of man with God will do valiantly. It is he who will tread down our foes. So this doesn't mean people can never be a help. This doesn't mean that God will never use people to help. What this means is man without God cannot produce salvation. Man on their own, by their own efforts, without God, cannot tread the enemy and it cannot bring, cannot bring victory over the foe or over the enemies. Man can't do it. In other words, this is not just talking about war and enemies and physical nations. This is giving you a glimpse into the kind of salvation God's going to work for his people. It's not just accomplished by the work or the hand of a single uh, human being. It's actually God himself coming. It's the eternal word emanating from the Father, putting on flesh, and divinity coming into our world to accomplish our salvation that no person can. Because guess what? A lot of you do look to people. Like you, your idea of salvation is temporary. It's political, it's healthcare, it's laws, right? It's, it's the decrees of the land. It's all these different things that you kind of bring into this idea of salvation. So you look to different figures, you look to different prophets, you look to different people who have authority in the government and you go, if only they, I'm just, I'm hoping that, and you look to people for salvation. Ultimately, God is the only true source of real salvation. So that doesn't mean I can't expect help from anyone else in terms of temporary physical relief, but spiritual salvation for the soul is not going to come by anyone else. So get that first, get salvation from God, right? 
then you can rightly frame up any help that comes from people. The help to, whether it's, I don't know, emotional or mental or even political, that's fine. But don't look to other people as ultimate. That's the problem, that's the, that's the danger. And those of you that really, really, really <clears throat> just wanna wave that political flag all over the place to the neglect of Jesus, it's a problem, it's a problem. <clears throat> We're almost to Jesus, I promise. I want to show you this. This is not me making it up. Like, this is what Psalm 119 says in two different places. We saw that salvation is attached to this sense of security, confidence, safety, protection. Uh, God brings it, He is our salvation, He works it. Um, it's going to come from Zion. Um, it's not by the hand of man alone without God, right? But also salvation is related to the word of God. So that's not a new idea in the New Testament where it's like suddenly we just believe and salvation comes. It's always been attached to the word of God and what God has revealed about himself. Psalm 119 verse 81, the psalmist says, my soul longs for your salvation. Now watch, this is not a different idea this is attached to the same concept of salvation. I hope in your word. Now hold on, Mr. Psalmist, you said you long for salvation, but then you're kind of saying, I, I long for or trust or hope in your word. And he's going, mm-hmm. So you're like, which one is it? Are you hoping for salvation or are you hoping in God's word? He'd go, yes, mm-hmm. And you'd go, <laughs> I don't understand. The word of God is what brings salvation. Doesn't God have to declare and, and authorize any kind of salvation to come into the world? Whether it's temporary, whether it's from enemies, surrounding nations, whether it's from sickness, isn't it God who de decrees that salvation is coming? And that's why Jesus will tell uh, Zacchaeus in his home, today salvation has come to this home because he has the authority to do that. So the salvation of God is attached to his word. Not just that he decrees and declares salvation for us, but also what he's spoken about himself, about the world, his, his word, Torah, at least in the time of the psalmist, but now the whole scripture, Old and New Testament, the word of God is actually what brings and ushers in salvation. Okay, that's why he's hoping in the word. The word of God, what he's decreed in the Torah, the Hebrew Bible, at least up to this point when the psalmist is writing this, he at least has Torah. Psalm 119 verse 23, it says, even though princes sit plotting against me, your servant will meditate on your statutes, on your statutes, right here. Now, <clears throat> That's not the one I wanted, but it kind of relates. Was it 123? Ugh. Typo. It is 123. How many verses are in Psalm 119? Can you guys guess? Don't look at your Bibles, don't cheat. Ah, here it is. My eyes long for your salvation. This is what the psalmist says. Psalm 119 is one beautiful 
just adoration of God's word. And for the fulfillment of your righteous promise. Hold on. Whoa, whoa, whoa. What righteous promise? Well, there's a lot of promises God has given the nation of Israel and humanity up to this point. Which one David is referring to, I'm not entirely sure. It seems to make the most sense that at least it's Genesis 3.15. That there is a promise for salvation to come for humanity through the seed of the woman, which is going to be Jesus. That's why Yeshua's name means salvation. Thank you, John. Yeshua's name means salvation. That's what his name means. He is the salvation of God. That's why he's the word. All these ideas come together. It's so awesome. So the psalmist is saying, I long for your salvation. And that salvation is what? The fulfillment of God's righteous promise. God has promised salvation. He will, he's righteously declared it and he'll make it happen. When that's fulfilled, salvation will come for humanity. I think whatever the psalmist has in mind, it is at least connected to Genesis 3.15 and the, the promised anointed messianic figure who will crush the head of the serpent. That's at least what I believe would be in mind. Because that's the righteous promise God has given from the get-go. The main promise that everything else will be built on is that promise of the righteous seed. And that's why every promise is yes and amen in Christ. Now, um, I want to show you a picture of salvation that is really cool. It, Jesus references this when the, the, the religious leaders come to him and go, Hey, give us a sign. Show us you really who you say you are. And he's going, Okay, let me give you a sign. Jonah, boy, Jonah. And they're like, Hmm, we don't understand. And Jesus goes, well, just like Jonah was three uh, days in the belly of the fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. That's the sign. In other words, he connects his salvation work, his atonement, to what we see in Jonah's story. He does it. So we should look at Jonah. Jonah is in the belly of the great fish, and he prays. This is what he says. I would venture to say Jonah actually physically died. Like he was knocking on the gates of Sheol. He, I think he died. I don't think he just was close to death. I don't think he was like, oh, I'm fainting. The way Jonah describes his experience when he cried out to God and then seemingly faded into the nothingness seems to be death. Uh, it would make sense why Jesus would reference that. He says, I called out to the Lord out of my distress and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol, I cried. There you go, well, that's just, you know, metaphorical. That's just exaggerated language. I don't know, is it? He says, you heard my voice. <clears throat> you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas. The floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. This is how some of you guys feel, like, spiritually and emotionally. <laughs> like, just one after another, man. You're getting rocked, knocked around. My, my suggestion to you is be like Jonah. Cry out to the Lord for whatever it is that you, are, you think you need and trust him to give you what you actually need. Then I said, um, I'm driven away from your sight. Yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. Did that actually happen or was it close to happening? The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. Now look at this description here. Weeds were wrapped around his head. At the roots of the mountains. When's the last time you just hung out at the bottom of the ocean? What Jonah calls the roots of the mountains. And you had weeds wrapped around your head. If you've actually done that, like props to you. But Jonah seems to be experiencing 
going down to the depths of the ocean, which I, I don't know how long a person can survive that descent and how long, I don't know, maybe it's based on the person, I don't know the scientific facts behind it. The point is, if he's at the root of the mountains, he's at the bottom. He's at the bottom of the ocean. I went down to the land whose bars closed on me forever. Now watch. Yet you brought up my life from the pit. Oh Lord, my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. Now this fainting away could have been right before he died. Like he ushered, a, you know, uttered a prayer to God and then he actually died. Or he's really close, but he's at least describing his last few moments before he maybe goes unconscious and he, he, he utters a prayer to God. And my prayer came to you in your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. With the voice of thanksgiving, I will sacrifice to you what I vowed I will pay. Now watch, salvation belongs to the Lord. What Jonah's describing is salvation. It's a, his life being brought up from the pit, from, from Sheol, from the belly of the earth, which seems to be like he died. This doesn't sound poetic. Like it could be partially poetic, partially like really happened. But either way, what he's describing is the salvation God brings. It belongs to him. Jonah just prayed and relied on God. He uttered a prayer to the only one who could save him and God brought him up. It sounds like Jesus. It's a very clear picture of Jesus breaking out of the grave into new life. The prayer coming, the holy temple, the steadfast love of God, all these different ideas come together in salvation. It's the love of God being put on display. It's connected to the temple of God. Now watch. <clears throat> okay. Salvation is for a kind of person. Just to be clear. This, that's not a new thing in the New Testament where it's like, only those who believe in Jesus. It's always been. The, faith has always been the, the, the currency of righteousness. Like if you want to be made righteous, God gives you that through faith. He makes you right with him through faith. Psalm 85 verse 9 tells us salvation is near to those who fear him. That's another way of saying those who truly believe and have faith. That glory may dwell in our land. Okay, so salvation is for a kind of person. I can spend a lot of time on this. I don't need to. Joel 2.32, it says, It shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. Who? Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Christian says, just got out of my eye appointment and went well. Amen. Good to hear, buddy. I was praying for you. That's awesome. Praise God. Um, so, um, <clears throat> the point is, if you want salvation, Romans 10 would affirm this. you got to call on the name of the Lord. What does that imply? Desperation, humility. Um, you've reached the end of yourself. Like, you know who won't call on the name of the Lord? Those who are prideful. Those who are self-righteous. Those who think they're self-sufficient. Those who depend on themselves and ignore the reality of God. But if you call on the name of the Lord, you're assuming a posture of helplessness. What you're saying is, I can't 
save myself. Just like Jonah, I can't save myself. You can, Lord. Would you do that? And our God is so quick to respond to that. That in the very second you utter those prayers, that prayer in faith, you're a new creation. So here's what you also need to see. Um, we already saw how salvation comes. I want you to think of Jesus, okay? When I, when I list these different things that we see in the Old Testament, I want you to think of Christ, okay? We've talked about God is our salvation. The, the light of God is connected to salvation, okay? Um, salvation is connected to the promised seed of the woman who will come and crush the head of the serpent, okay? Uh, salvation is, rightly belongs to God alone. He's the only Savior. He's the only Savior. He's the only one who works salvation. Um, God gives it. Salvation comes out of Zion. It's going to come out of the place where God has chosen to make his name dwell among Israel, which is Jerusalem. Okay? Um, salvation is not worked by man. That doesn't mean it won't come through a person. It's just not achievable by any man apart from God coming down and assuming human flesh himself. And salvation is for those who fear him, for those who call on his name. They'll be saved. Okay? Now, we get to Hebrews chapter 5, and I want to show you, before we just say, Jesus is salvation, I want you to think of all these ideas and how Christ might relate to them. So, let me know in the chat, if, let me know if anything is connecting for you, if any of the dots are connecting, and show me what, what specifically is connecting in your mind, okay? What specifically is God connecting in your mind between Christ and the Old Testament picture of salvation? And then guess what? Through Jonah being saved, he brings salvation to the Gentiles. Thanks, Sean, for reminding me of that. He brings salvation to the Gentiles. So Jesus is the source of salvation, okay? Jesus being made perfect. That's talking about his humanity. He became the source of eternal salvation, okay? I've spent a lot of time explaining that. A lot of people think Jesus was imperfect or he was not salvation. This is just referring to Jesus accomplishing for us what wasn't available prior to his atonement, eternal salvation. That's why he becomes the source. That's why he assumes human flesh. That's why he's a human mediator and the perfect high priest. He's made perfect through his suffering, through going into the grave and coming out into resurrected life. That perfection is what qualifies Jesus, you might say, as the first resurrected human to be our salvation. To all who what? Obey him. That's why believing is not just, I acknowledge the facts. For those of you that think, faith is just acknowledging the facts. It's not. James 2 makes it very clear. Even the demons acknowledge the facts. And guess what? They probably know some things you and I aren't even aware of. They've probably seen some things you and I haven't even seen. They know about God. They know God. They don't love what they know. They don't trust in what they know. They don't obey and submit to what they know about God. They've rejected and rebelled. Okay? So to believe is to obey the message of the gospel. And when you do, our high priest, designated by God, gives you salvation. Gives you the salvation you and I lack, okay? It's very important that you understand. We're not saying you're saved by works. We're saying you're saved through faith by grace alone. But faith is, by definition, obeying a message you're listening to. 
And for those, I know, understand like the Calvinistic theology would frame it up a little differently. Well, you're not obeying. You can't obey. You don't have the capacity to. You're entirely depraved. You don't even have the desire and the ability to actually cry out and believe. Okay, it's fine. You can hold to that doctrine. I'd rather, what I see in scripture is something very different. That God calls people to obey and believe a message that he's declaring about his son. That's how salvation comes. Jesus is the source of our salvation. Okay? He's the source. Psalm 62, verse 1 through 2, also tells us, God alone, for God alone, my soul waits. This is, for some of you, you've already done this for salvation. Because from him comes my salvation, right? He's my rock and my salvation, my fortress, I won't be shaken. Some of you have done that. You've waited in silence for God to redeem and save and reconcile you. What you haven't done is to daily sit in silence waiting on him to move in your life. You've stopped waiting on him. You've moved forward in your own efforts, in your own plans, in your own innovation, and you let your creativity and your feelings and desires guide your life. You don't wait in silence for what only God can do in your life. And you're trying to do it on your own. So the question becomes, if God is the only one that can save you, which is the, absolutely the, what we need the most, okay? Why would you think that you can do other things without him? David is waiting in silence for the temporary salvation from his enemies, of course. But also there's this idea in scripture, which we'll touch on when we get to our series called Waiting on the Lord. When we get to that later this year, waiting on God is more than just, it's not doing nothing. It's not laziness. It's not inactivity. It's not complacency. Like, I really want you guys to think, am I waiting on the Lord daily for what only he can do in my life? Or am I choosing to operate and function without him? First Peter chapter one tells us that the salvation Jesus brings the salvation the Old Testament prophesies and predicts. He's looking back and going, oh, concerning this salvation, which when you think salvation, now that we've entered into the New Testament, just think Yeshua. His name means salvation. The Lord is our salvation. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, they searched and they inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glory. By the way, here we see the spirit of Christ personified. He's given a personal pronoun. He. He predicted the sufferings of Christ. Okay, so the spirit of God is a person. Someone to be, you know, experienced and have a relationship with. But beyond that. The salvation the prophets prophesied of, they didn't even fully understand. Now we'll get to Luke. This is where things get really cool. I, I just want you guys to think about all that we've said, all that we've talked about, the salvation we need. I know you think you need more finances and you need better health and you need a better home and you just need to get out of your house and move on to college. And if I just leave, I, my parents won't burden me anymore. I know we all, all have an idea of what we need to be saved from. This addiction, this habit, what you need most to be saved from hear me, is sin and death. Those are the two things 
nothing and no one in existence can save you from and change except God. He's the only one. Now we're going to get into Luke. Okay. Before we do, it's potty break time. So heed. If you're on TikTok, you don't get to hear the commercial break. Jump on YouTube so you can hear it. Stay tuned for the commercial break and I'll be right back. If you've not already done this, go to AboveReproachMinistry.com. We have a bunch of free resources that are made available to anyone around the world, completely free and accessible to anyone who wants to learn how to read the Bible. We have free online Bible study courses that will teach you how to read the Bible. We have free study devotionals that walk you through specific patterns and keywords in the book of Ephesians. We have free Bible study worksheets. We have Bible study workshops. We have all this free content because of generous supporters like you guys. And if you want to support this ministry, we're teaching people how to read the Bible so they can live and teach the Bible themselves. And there are a bunch of ways to donate. You can go to AboveReproachMinistry.com slash donate. You can give through debit or credit card. You can send a check to P.O. Box 338, uh, Green Cove Springs. You can give through PayPal, Cash App, Venmo, Patreon. And then you can also get some church merch. If you've not already grabbed some church merch, I would recommend you do that so you can represent Jesus on your body. And all the proceeds go right back into this content so that we can reach more people and equip people to, you know, live and teach the Bible themselves. And if you didn't know this, I actually have a book. I've published a book. It's called Fruitful. And the point of this book is to be a resource to the church to teach people um, the essential keys for the most abundant Christian life this side of heaven. And so in this book, what I do is I, I outline the gospel absolutely clearly <laughs> so you can actually know what the foundational truth is. And then from there, we discover what our purpose is, what our process is, and what our position is now in Christ. So if you are a new believer, or if you're a believer that really wants to understand what I believe are the essential key truths that a lot of people don't understand in the church, I would grab a copy. And if you haven't already joined our online church, get in that online church. We have a lot of cool stuff happening, events every single day pretty much. Uh, we're in there praying and fellowshipping and gathering and growing together as a community. And the last thing is this. If you haven't already checked out our podcast, uh, we have podcasts on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and everywhere else where you can get a podcast. And pretty much all the content on YouTube, the live streams, what we do is we um, make that into podcast format so you guys can just listen on the go. So go check that out if you have not already. And let's get back to the video. Did the audio come through all right? I want to make sure that that was my first time using that, but um, I want to make sure the <laughs> John's grammar matters. Classic John. Yes, good. All right, we're exiting the Old Testament, fellas and lady fellas, Fel fellies, and we're entering the new. You ready? We've already entered the new with First Peter, but we're officially entering in to Jesus being our salvation, okay? Luke 169. This is, uh, I believe, Zechariah's prophecy. He says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, he has visited and redeemed his people. When did God do that? When did God do that? Blessed be the Lord, he's visited and redeemed his people. Is he declaring past events? Sure. I, I don't doubt that at all. God has visited and, re and redeemed his people. Look at the Exodus. Look at the judges. Look at bringing them back from exile. Okay. Look at him rescuing his people out of the hands of certain nations. But I believe Zechariah is talking about something that's presently taking place, like it's happening real time for him. 
He has raised up a horn of salvation for us. Remember the horn of salvation in the Old Testament? The trumpet of victory and salvation, right? Well, he's raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. That's why I started with 1 Peter. I didn't even know that's why I started with 1 Peter, but that's part of the reason I guess I did it. Is So you'd see the prophets declared the salvation that is ours now in Christ <clears throat> that comes through the house of David as he spoke by the mouth of his prophets of old that we should be saved from our enemies. Now what's the main enemy we need to be saved from? Well, death, okay? And sin is the, is the sting of death. And from the hand of all who hate us to show mercy. And he'll go on to talk about the beautiful covenant. Okay. I could talk about this for a while. I, I, there are other scriptures I have to get to. I just want you to see that this parallels what we saw in 2 Samuel 22. In other words, Zechariah is talking about Jesus. 2 Samuel 22. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. Guess what? He's the horn of my salvation. Well, in Zechariah's time, the horn of salvation is actually going to be Jesus. Okay? Thank you for that gift. Luke chapter 2. It says, "My." this is what Simeon says as he's dying. Like he says, God told him, Simeon, don't worry. You'll be alive until you see my salvation. And Simeon comes in the spirit, sees baby Jesus when Mary and Joseph bring him to deal with all the customs of the law. And then Simeon goes, oh Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace. According to your word, my eyes have seen your salvation that you've prepared in the presence of all the peoples. Now remember how Psalm 27.1 tells us that the Lord is my light and my salvation. Well, Simeon says, well, this salvation that he's seeing in the form of baby Jesus is also a light for revelation. That's why John will open his gospel and say, Jesus is the light. He's the light, light of life to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. This would have been a little like, uh, what's the word when something's like, not always accepted. I can't think of the word. Okay. Either way, uh, <clears throat> what Simeon is saying is their salvation for the people, and it's also for the Gentiles. It's also for the Gentiles, okay? Zechariah prophesied this horn of salvation that John the Baptist would get to, you know, his son would get to play a role in declaring and making a way for, right? He's preparing the way for, for Jesus, our salvation. Simeon says, I've seen the salvation of God. He's here. He's a baby. This is insane. I'm seeing the light of revelation. Luke 3, 6 uh, tells us all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Now who's declaring this? Uh, this right here is John the Baptist. Uh, he went in all the region proclaiming a baptism of repentance. Or as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah. This is Isaiah declaring what John will do. He's going to be a voice in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Prepare the way of the Lord. And guess what? All flesh shall see the salvation of God. Luke does a fantastic job of emphasizing the fact that salvation is also for Gentiles. That's, that's one of his main points of emphasis in his gospel. Is that salvation is not just for the Jews. 
It's for the Gentiles as well. Luke chapter, and this actually parallels Exodus 14, when Moses says, hey Israel, stop complaining. I know we're faced against the water and Pharaoh's on the other side, this is pretty weird. You're gonna see the salvation of God. Well, guess what? All flesh will see the salvation of God in a greater sense, not just Israel and not just Egypt at the Reed Sea, but all flesh shall see the salvation of God being Jesus himself, okay? John 4.22, Jesus specifies, and I'm, I'm connecting all the ideas for you. Remember in the Old Testament, Isaiah uh, 46.13, Psalm 14.7 tells us salvation comes from Israel. John 4.22, Jesus tells the woman at the well, hey, salvation is from the Jews. He's not being racially exclusive, right? He's not isolating salvation and restricting it just to the Jewish nation. He's saying that's what God has ordained to do through the nation of Israel, salvation is coming, okay? Now, when you get to Acts, Jesus is ascended to the Father. This is what is said about Jesus. Uh, I believe Peter's preaching here. Yes, Peter and John. They're declaring um, to the religious leaders, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you guys. The builders, this Jesus has become the cornerstone. Remember, in the Old Testament, salvation is connected to God being the rock, like the stone that our lives or the world is built on, right? So Jesus being the cornerstone, watch how Peter leads right into that. He's gonna explain how salvation, there is salvation in no one else. This is what God says in Isaiah 43, 11, that salvation, um, I'll, I'll take you to the text so you know I'm not making it up. This is what Peter declares about Jesus, the word of God who brings salvation. It says, the Lord says, besides me, there is no savior. And I'm trying to think where else. Um, besides me, there is no savior. He says, I am your salvation. God alone works salvation. So when Peter declares that there's salvation in no one else, because there's no other name under heaven given among men by, what's, by, by which we must be saved, he's also quoting what, what I just showed you, Joel chapter 2, verse 32. So Joel 2, 32, remember it says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Peter's saying that name the sum total attributes, the character who you call on, not the character like a cartoon, but the attributes of a person, the sum total of, of the name is, is Jesus, Yeshua, salvation. There's salvation in no one else. That's why he's the source of salvation in Hebrews chapter five, because God has validated and approved of no one else but his son to be the method of distributing salvation. So when we see Jesus distributing the loaves and the fishes, you're supposed to see a picture, a future, a prophetic picture of what's gonna happen in the future <clears throat> when his disciples bring salvation in his name, when he is the one bringing salvation and distributing it to his disciples to give to the world in the form of the gospel about Christ, the good news about Jesus. So guess what? There's salvation in no one else. 
because he's the cornerstone, he's the rock, he's that stronghold, and he's the name we call on to be saved, like Romans chapter 10 tells us. This is really, this is awesome. For me, I nerd out with all this stuff because I like to see how Jesus is just, man, he's built, you might say, in a, in, in a weird sense, he's built on the Old Testament. He's the fulfillment of it. Um, Acts chapter 13, verse 23. Okay. <clears throat> this is crazy. Acts 13, 23. Uh, I forget who's preaching here. Um, most likely Paul. Yeah, Paul. Okay, Paul's going off. And he says, of this man's offspring, remember salvation would come from the house of David. Okay. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he has promised. Well, we saw that the savior is promised all throughout the Old Testament, starting in Genesis 3. Starting in Genesis 3, which is the, the, the clearest, the first clear, explicit promise that salvation is coming. Jesus is the Savior. Isaiah 43, verse 11, God says, There is no Savior besides me. Jesus is the Savior. Well, God has brought to Israel this one who saves. Just like he promised. Okay, Jesus isn't some, some new character doing some new thing. Jews think he is when he comes. Acts 16, 17, you know, we have the spirit of divination through a slave girl declaring, Hey! about Paul, these guys are servants of the Most High. They're proclaiming to you the way of salvation. Now, she wasn't lying. She was just trying to ride on the coattails of their ministry to validate what she is doing, to bring, to kind of bolster her reputation. <clears throat> it gives her credit to validate this. Well, yeah, here they come, the way of salvation. So the way of salvation is Jesus. Paul is proclaiming that way to be saved. That's why Jesus in John 14 will say, I'm the way back to the Father. You want to be saved? You want to get back to re relationship with God, the tree of life, the garden presence of God? You go through me. I'm the way of salvation, Jesus says. That's why Joel 2.32 is so important in this conversation. It's awesome. Now, Titus 2.11 is another scripture. I hope you're nerding out as much as I am. Titus 2.11, it says, The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. So this salvation that God brings is not just for some, like only, only the, the ones who are predetermined to believe. Sorry if I came off as kind of that way against Calvinists. I apologize. That's, it's, it's that ridiculous to me. Salvation is available to all, but it's given only to some because not all want it. Not everyone wants it. Luke chapter 19, this is what Jesus says to Zacchaeus in his house. Today, salvation has come to this house. Today. Since he is also a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and save the lost. Sounds a lot like God. How can Jesus declare that salvation comes to this house? How does he have that authority? Because um, he's the savior, because he is salvation, because he is the embodiment of redemption and salvation, just like we see prophesied in the Old Testament. He meets all the criteria perfectly of what true salvation is. In fact, we get to Revelation 
and this is what John sees. He sees a great multitude. And this is important because salvation is not just for the Jews. Again, from every nation, from all tribes, <clears throat> from all peoples, from all languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. All these people are clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. Think of Jesus entering into Jerusalem and they're declaring, <coughs> Hosanna, Hosanna, save, save. And crying out with a loud voice, um, salvation belongs to our God. And you're like, yes, that's right. And to the Lamb. So when God says, I alone save, I alone give salvation, besides me there is no Savior. And then Jesus steps in, and both him and his disciples make those exclusive claims about Christ the Messiah, there's no contradiction happening. Just to be clear, Jesus is not contradicting the Father. The Father's not contradicting what the Son says. That's why I started with the compound, complex unity of the Godhead. To say that, yes, if you ask me, so is God our salvation or is Jesus? Does God save us? Is he our only Savior or is Jesus? And I say, yes. Yes. Okay. Now here's more of the practical, for those of you that are like, give me some practical steps. First of all, I can give you all the practical directions in the, in the world. But if you don't have the theological framework to properly walk that out in a sustainable way, I'm not doing you a good service. So that's why I give you an exalted view of Jesus as best as I'm able to from the scriptures. That's why I try and clarify who he is as seen in the word. So that as you have a magnified view of him, as your theology, you might say, improves and becomes more precise and you have a more accurate view of who our God is, well, then that's going to give you the proper framework to walk out these practical instructions. The problem is you have a lot of moral therapeutic churches, meaning they're just trying to give you some good do's and don'ts to be a good person, but it's disconnected from Jesus. <coughs> And they're not giving you proper sound doctrine, a good theology about who our God is. So that when they give these instructions, people are trying and striving and straining to do these things. But they don't have the foundational theology to sustain that kind of life. And they burn out and they get exhausted. And they start putting works into the category of salvation. And they go, my works sustain me. And that's why I end with the more practical stuff. Okay, there's a reason I do that. Um, I forget where I learned that from, but I learned it. I didn't make it up. <laughs> Ephesians 6, 17. Okay, here's more of the practical elements of salvation. Yes, believe. Yes, trust. Yes, cry out for God alone to save you and don't rely on anything else. Rely on Him. For those of you that have not yet given your life to Jesus, here's the gospel message. In other words, here's the message of salvation. Here's the way you can be saved today. is by trusting and believing in what Christ has done for you. What has he done for you? Well, Jesus has come down from heaven as the eternal word emanating from the Father. He entered into our world, took on human flesh, became one of us. Why? Because God loves you. And because you and I had a problem called sin. 
and you and I fell short and did not meet the perfect standard of God. And our sin, our mistakes, our crime against God deserves just penalty. There's consequences for the crime we commit against God when we violate his law. Whether you lie, cheat, steal, lust, covet, all that, okay? There's consequences, and the consequence is that sin makes me incompatible with the presence of God. Your crime, however small you make it, your sin and failure and mistakes keep you out of the presence of God. You can't be in relationship with him because he's perfect. Light can't coexist with darkness. And so the darkness of our heart has to be dealt with. The death that our sin deserves has to be dealt with. The debt that we owe has to be paid. Either by us or by someone who steps in and is capable of paying that themselves. That's who Jesus is. He comes to pay our debt. He comes to meet the standard of God's law in our place because we never could. He's the perfect human that lives for us since no one else is perfect. Everyone is imperfect and falls short. He doesn't. He never fails, never makes a mistake, never ever sins. Plays by his own rules, you might say. And then he lays his life down, allows himself to be nailed to a cross in order to take the full brunt of human evil and wickedness so that evil itself takes up residency in his flesh so that God can release the just penalty of our sin upon Jesus' body. And he takes those consequences on himself. He pays our debt. He dies our death. His life, his shed blood, pays for humanity's sinful debt. And then he dies. He's laid in the tomb. And he stays there three days. And he breaks out of the grave three days later. And he resurrects and he conquers death as the first resurrected human to make way for yours and my salvation. Because it's in no one else. No one else has done this. So Jesus is offering you and I by the grace of God, because he loves you enough to come down and lay his life down, he's offering you a way out of death. He's offering you a way for your debt to be paid for as a criminal. Because he's justly, legally paid for it with his own life. And since the consequence of our crime is death, the loss of life, Jesus stepped in and said, I'll give up mine so they can have my life. This is what Jesus offers you. Your job is to simply take him at his word and believe him and believe that's true and live like that's true as an expression of your faith because faith is never without witness. Your faith will bear good fruit. There will be evidence that you truly believe and trust in this Messiah, this anointed one, this Christ. Jesus calls us to just believe. And part of believing is that you turn from your old way of life to God for a new life. So here's what it practically looks like to believe. God, I believe that your son has paid my sin and died and resurrected. I want his life. I confess my sin to you. I don't want to live sinful. I want my debt paid. I want to live for you because I believe you're worth living for. So take my life. I want to live for you. I believe. I confess my sin. That's what it looks like to believe. And then your life, day by day, will start to look like Jesus. Now that salvation you have, okay, for those of you that believe that for the first time today, for those of you that have never given your life to Christ and never understood the gospel, never repented, turned away from your sin, repent means change of mind, right? But what are you changing your mind about? 
You're changing your mind about sin and you're turning from that. A change of mind always produces a change of life. So it's not change of life, not change of life. No, it's change of mind will change your life. So you're turning from sin. If, though, if you've never done that, and today is your first day believing in the gospel, and you're turning from sin and coming to Jesus in faith, let us know in the chat. Like, let us know. Say, I have just given my life to Jesus. I want to follow Jesus. I believe the gospel. I want to follow Yeshua into salvation, and I want to walk with him. If this is your first time doing that, let us know in the chat so we can get you connected to the right places and the right people. We want to follow up with you and get you some resources and, and walk with you, okay? Here's the more practical side of things. Ephesians 6, 17, it says, take up the helmet of salvation. You can't take up something you don't have. That's why I shared the gospel first. Because our salvation we have now is the helmet for our mind. That's where, or our brain, the way we think, the thoughts we have. The salvation we have, we're to put on like a helmet. Now, I'm not saying if you don't, you know, uh, metaphorically put on your helmet today, you're not saved. This isn't taking on and off our standing with God. And I don't take on and off my identity with, before, the, before God. That's always constant. My salvation is constant. This is actually conforming your thinking according to the salvation you have in Jesus. I choose to do that today. I choose to put on and this, the helmet of salvation by letting my thoughts um, or by choosing to think about what aligns with my salvation or letting my salvation in Christ influence how I think. It becomes the driving force for how I think. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 8 also tells us the same idea, that the salvation Jesus provides us becomes a kind of head protection around your mind, your way of thinking, the, um, the thoughts you have, the ideas you entertain, right? We need the salvation we have to influence and drive our way of thinking and thought life and our head. 1 Thessalonians 5.8 says, Since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope, of salvation. And so this is not just a general idea of, oh, you're saved. This is, you will be resurrected. You will be glorified with Jesus. You will reign with him. He's coming back to bring the full manifestation of your salvation. He is. Our hope in that, because we take God at his word, that provides us protection for our way of thinking. So that I think according to the hope I have in Jesus. I need to allow my hopes of salvation to drive and influence the thoughts I entertain. Second Chronicles chapter 6, verse 41, if you think this helmet of salvation is a new thing, actually in the Old Testament, there's at least three places where you're told to put on salvation. Um, uh, Let your priest, O Lord God, be clothed with salvation. So this is asking God to clothe his priests as they tend to the ark um, in the temple. I believe this is Solomon. And like 100%, like 99% sure this is Solomon praying this. But he's saying clothe your priests with salvation. Um, Isaiah chapter 61 verse 10. It says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God. Why? 
He's clothed me with the garments of salvation. Of salvation. Isn't that beautiful? It is God who clothes us with the garments of salvation. Now watch. This is why the parable of the wedding feast in Matthew 20-something, Jesus, at the end of the parable, describes a guy being at a wedding feast, but he's not dressed appropriately. He doesn't have wedding garments on. Like, he, he somehow got into the wedding feast, but he's not wearing the proper attire. And then he's pulled out of the, of the wedding feast because he doesn't belong there. That's a picture of someone trying to stand <clears throat> in the presence of God and not being appropriately dressed. Meaning, it's Jesus who covers us in his righteousness. Remember, in the Old Testament, salvation and righteousness were connected, right? So not only is my salvation this idea of I am saved from sin and death, it's this idea of in the sight of God, I have right standing with him. I have right relationship with him. I am right in his sight because I'm covered in his son's perfection. That also plays into, you have to put that on mentally daily. You have to choose to live and think like you are righteous in the sight of God. Because it's God who clothes us in his son's righteousness. Okay? You don't clothe yourself. You don't find these garments and pick them up. No, I'm going to try them on. God clothes you. Isaiah 59, 17, it says, He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing, wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. I believe um, Isaiah is describing God. Truth is lacking. The Lord saw it. Yeah. So he's, this is Hebrew poetry, prophetic Hebrew poetry, um, declaring what God is doing to deal with the situation at hand. Well, it's like he's putting on a breastplate and helmet of salvation. These are the attributes of our God. He's righteous. He is a savior. And we're just trying to follow in his footsteps, not saving people on our own but bringing the salvation God has brought us in the form of the, the gospel, okay? So you have to daily choose. This is, here's your homework. Here's your daily responsibility. Today, tomorrow, every day for the rest of your life. Put on, choose to think in such a way uh, where you're, let me say it, pretend I didn't say anything. Think and live like you're righteous and saved. Does that make sense? Like actually live like you're saved. Live like you're righteous. Not on your own, but because of Jesus. Now go and think like that. See yourself through that lens. See and, and worship and praise God through that lens of you've made me righteous. You've saved me. Second Corinthians 7.10 actually talks about real salvation. Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation. So for those that say, well, salvation does not require repentance. Repentance is not some meritorious work where it's like, go and clean your gutters. Repentance is literally what is part of faith. Faith includes repentance. Otherwise, what are you believing God has done for you? What are you believing you need to confess? What are you believing he saves you from? So it's assumed within faith that you're turning from, changing your mind about sin. And a godly grief, which is a godly sorrow, where you realize the weight of what you've done, and you don't sit in that, 
You don't try and justify it. You don't excuse it. You don't try and make up for it. You come to God and say, I have messed up. And there's a conviction. I repent. Would you save me? That's what produces salvation. Without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. Okay? There's a worldly grief. Think of Judas and Peter. Here's the contrast. Judas was sorry, but he didn't do anything necessarily. He didn't repent, change his mind about what he'd done, confess, seek forgiveness. He didn't come to Jesus. He just threw the money in the, in the temple, right? Um, and he said, I, I've shed innocent blood. So there was a sorrow without action necessarily. Like, I guess the action you might say would be throwing money in the temple to the, to the religious leaders. And then they go, what are we going to do about it? But either way, he, his, the weight of his sin caused him to, to end his life. That's different than Peter. The weight of his sin, right? Um, denying Jesus three times. He doesn't end his life. He doesn't stay in that shame. He actually is restored by Jesus when Jesus comes back up from the grave. So that, that's the difference, is godly repentance, godly sorrow, godly grief, um, is not just, I'm sorry. It's the intent to change and the admission that only God can forgive me. And I can't make up for this. God has to forgive me. It leads to repentance. Whereas worldly sorrow is like, I'm sorry, but I don't intend to change. Or, or I'm sorry, I'll try and make up for it. Okay. Ephesians uh, 1.13 talks about how, um, well, I'll let Paul say, in him, when you heard the word of truth, okay, remember I said the word of God in the Old Testament is connected to salvation? Well, Paul will, you know, affirm that. The gospel of your salvation is the word of truth. So the way you bring salvation to people or invite people into the salvation we have is by declaring the word of truth. And Jesus is the truth. He is the word. He is our salvation. So who do you think you're really inviting people to come and know, right? Who are you sharing with people? More than just a set of guidelines, more than just some, some local community, more than just some club. You're inviting people into a relationship with Jesus, who is the truth, who is the word of God, who is our salvation. And he says, when you believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Part of God's saving is God's sealing. And the way you are sealed or marked as his own for the day of redemption by the Spirit is, is you believe. And then God takes his Spirit and he seals you, marks you as his own until the day you acquire the full possession of, um, or you acquire full possession of the inheritance Jesus has purchased for us. In other words, you and I have an inheritance. It's called glory. It's called redemption. It's called reigning with Christ. It's called being in the new earth and actually like having authority and responsibility and like cultivating. You and I have an inheritance. Relationship with God, land, eternal life, all this stuff. We're part of the family of God. That inheritance has not been fully manifest or revealed to us. So how do I know it's coming? How do I know it's mine for sure? Well, God guarantees your inheritance by giving you a down payment called the presence of his spirit who seals you the minute you believe the word of truth. 
And believing the word of truth is not believing a set of words, it's believing in a person to do something for you. It's believing in Jesus to save us from sin, to save us from death. So you either believe God's going to do that and save you, you're going to take him at his word, or you're not. That's, part, that's literally part of the salvation package. This, the sealing of his spirit is not a different thing. That's part of the package we call salvation. It's righteousness, it's redemption, it's right standing, it's relationship, it's being sealed. It's all these things, man. It's all these things. Now, here's the last thing I'll end. When it comes to salvation, for those of you that want to be saved, you, you can't have salvation unless you legally have the right to that inheritance. In other words, salvation is your inheritance. Salvation is your inheritance. Part of it at least. I wouldn't take the fullness of inheritance and restrict it just to salvation. But when it comes to thinking about salvation properly, that's an inheritance for God's people. That's why Romans will say, look, if Jesus reconciled us while we're enemies, how much more will God save us on the day of judgment from his wrath, from death? How much more will we, we be saved now that we're his children? Like if God looked at enemies and said, I want to, I want to, um, what was it? Reconcile. I want to reconcile them. I want to bring them into relationship with me. Now that we're children, how much more will God want to save us on the day of judgment from death and wrath? So salvation is an inheritance for his children. Listen very clearly. The salvation you and I desire, this deep, deep craving and longing for a, a, a salvation of some sort, the spiritual eternal salvation you need, it's inherited. You have to be a part of the family of God to have a right to that inheritance. Like if you want a part of the estate or the full estate, you got to be a son or a daughter of the living God. So he talks about how angels are ministering spirits to serve those who are to inherit salvation. So you, you and I, when we think about, wow, the salvation I have, it's something I'm not entitled to. I don't deserve right? But I'm given it as an inheritance because Jesus, the perfect son, has actually accomplished it for me and he's written my name in the will by his own blood. That's crazy. <clears throat> so, the inheritance of our salvation, the person of our salvation, being clothed daily and actually living like you have this salvation, it's so important, man. It's so important. And I pray that you guys would walk in the full victory that Christ has given. Enjoy. This is my prayer for you guys. Some people don't like this language because they think I'm giving them permission to sin. I'm not. Some people don't like what I'm about to say because they think you're just enabling people to be lazy and complacent and not put work into their relationship with God. I'm not. So hear me. God's desire in scripture 
and, and my desire too, because I see it's God's desire for you. I want you to enjoy your salvation. Do you know how many people don't enjoy the gift they have because they're so afraid of losing it? Because they're so afraid of not being to, able to upkeep it? They're so afraid of like, I might uh, uh, you know, forfeit or lose this. They can't enjoy God. I posted a tweet the other day and I think it was something along the lines of there's a big difference between enjoying God daily and just trying not to go to hell. Those are two very different lifestyles and every single one of you fits under one of those categories. You either enjoy God daily and you enjoy the salvation he's given you as a free gift or you're just trying to live every day trying not to go to hell. That's your life. It's just, I'm just trying to make it. That doesn't sound like a, like a child of God is supposed to be secure, confident, not prideful, not entitled, not arrogant. But if my father says what he says in scripture, I'm going to take him at his word. And I'm going to enjoy the relationship I have with him. And guess what? Enjoying him is not abusing what he's given. It's not sitting on what he's given me. It's not taking for granted. It's actually working and serving and loving and transforming and seeking his face. That's part of what it means to enjoy the salvation he's given us. Okay, so real quick, as an end, for those of you that don't know, go to abovereproachministry.com to find out everything we have here in this ministry. My book, all our free resources, our online church, check out our mission, our, our theological beliefs, um, you can support this ministry, Cash App, PayPal, Venmo, Patreon, give through debit or credit, send a check. Um, our, our YouTube workshops, our Bible study classes, all this stuff is on our website. Okay, our merch, um, some helpful resources if you're a new believer or if you're new to the community. All right, so go check that out, abovereproachministry.com. I just wanted to share that um, as we get out of here. That's it for today. Episode 7, done. Salvation is Jesus. That's who he is. He is our salvation. Now go and live in such a way where you enjoy the salvation he's provided. All right? I love you, fam. I'll see you guys next Monday. Um, yes, next Monday. I just wanted to make sure I wasn't off. Next Monday, I'll see you guys. God bless you and keep moving towards Jesus. I'll see you Monday.